Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Dunsky continued our series, The Disruptor, talking about how Jesus disrupts our participation, meaning our participation in the world of being separated from the world versus being immersed in the world. We looked at Daniel 1, verses 1 through 8, when Daniel has to hold his ground against the king, being the model for how we should approach faith. Matt talked about how our faith puts us against the values of the world, and we are constantly in a balancing act of having grace for others and obeying God's truth. We hope you are encouraged by this and enjoy this message. Welcome, everyone. How's everyone doing tonight? Good. Oh, man. Guys, my name is Matt Dinsky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. I would like to welcome you to Fellowship Greenville students. We are so excited you're here with us tonight. We love you. And uh, man, we've been praying for you all week. And I want you to know that um, our heart for every person in this room is we want you to know that we believe every person has a place to belong. That's just part of what we're about. We think everyone has a place to belong. It does not matter what you believe. It does not matter what, what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from. We believe that you belong and you can belong here because you have intrinsic worth and because you're loved. So we want you to know that. We believe in the person of Jesus. We think and believe that at a certain point in history, God took on flesh, stepped out of heaven and walked on earth and taught us um, not only who, who God it was in, in deeper detail, but also what it means to be a human, to be created in the full picture of what that is. And through faith in Jesus, we desire to become like him. That's our heart. We love you guys. We're, we're glad you're here. We want you to know you're, you belong and you're loved. Over the past few weeks, we've been in the midst of a series called The Disruptor. And, um, and really, it, it's centering around Jesus and really the, the waves that he made during his earthly ministry. I know a lot of times this picture gets painted of Jesus, and you imagine like this very gentle dude, and, and he's just kind of walking around, and his, his bros are walking with him, and you got like doves flying around, and maybe like a lamb over his shoulder, and he's just like super <laughs> chill, and like, yo, what up, peace to you, right? Like almost like a Jewish Gandhi, right? Like, yo, what up, dog? <sighs> Hello, right? He's just kind of chill, man. Um, and while some of that is true, Jesus was also a disruptor. He made waves. Um, he made waves in a lot of different areas, and I believe he's still making waves today. And so for the past few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus as disruptor, and we're going to continue that series tonight. Uh, my wife and I have been married for almost eight years, and <laughs> Ginny Ann, thanks. Thanks, man. First, first person to cheer. Noted, Ginny Ann. Okay, thank you. Um, we've been married for almost eight years. That's my girl. That's my boo. I love her. She like, she whoa, you know what I mean? Like she everything. Um, don't tell her I did that. Um, we have two beautiful baby boys. We've got a baby girl on the way coming months, months away. It's going to be wild. Uh, yeah, I just love that girl so much. But bef- before we were married, we had one of the biggest fights we've ever had. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, like I fight with my wife. I'm a person. Okay. I, I know you're like, oh my gosh, a pastor who fights with his wife, his betrothed. You found me. I'm the only pastor who does that. Um, but we, we had a fight when you're engaged, you, you enter into a crucible, you enter into a, 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 a trial. Anyone seen the hunger games? It's similar to that. And <laughs> Lucas, I love you so much. Um, 
But basically, you go through a process, a ceremony, a rite of passage, and you, you have to do something called registering, registering, yeah. where you go to stores, and they hand you this magical device, and, and you just walk around the store, and you point it at things, and beep, and you're like, <gasps> and it somehow means you get that thing, and, and basically, you're communicating to all the people who attend your wedding buy this stuff for us, right? Like, it's, it's the perfect thing for really young and broke married people, which basically everyone is. And so you just walk around and beep, beep, beep. Like you're just getting carried away. Things you don't even need, like melon scooper. <laughs> like you just, anything. So we're walking, we're walking around and people, people had warned us. People had warned us about registering and we were like, okay, like, okay. It gets tense and it gets heated and you're going to fight. And we had made it through the whole day. In fact, we had some uh, some dear friends warn us, don't, don't register for bath towels. Just hold it off. Just someone do it on their own. We had the biggest knockdown drag out fight. And we're like, really? Over oh, bath? And they're like, those are the devil. <laughs> right? Like, okay. Noted. So we were like, oh, we could do it. So we actually went to the bath towels. We made it through fine. We we're like, we're so holy. Man, we, we, we so good. Boo, we, we the best. And so we thought we were doing well. We were at the end of the day. We had made it through traffic and driving everywhere and going to all these stores. And I hate, like, this whole process I hate, but I love my boo. And so we were, we were in all this stuff. We, we made it through the whole day. And we were at one store in particular, which has a, a, a certain area dedicated to bedding and a certain area dedicated to bath and then a certain area dedicated to beyond those things. <laughs> and we were in the beyond category of the store in the kitchen plates. Yes, this is, where, this is where it all went down. Any sense of pride we had in our strength as a couple disintegrated. We were registering for wedding china. And I could not for the life of me figure out why. Like why, why Bob, like why do we need these plates? We have other plates. We've got many surfaces to eat off. I'll turn a Frisbee upside down. I don't mind. Like, why do we need these plates? Look at the price tag. Let's go to the Dollar Tree. Why? Like, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And my wife, honestly, is not that type of girl either. She didn't even want the plates. She felt pressure by her mom. To get, does that make any sense to anybody? I don't want them either, but my mom wants me to. And I'm like... But I'm not marrying your mom. I'm marrying you. <laughs> Full on fight. I could not understand it. We're, we start going at it and people in the store overhear it. And they hear like this argument happening and people getting worked up and crying. And so the manager had to come over and make sure I was okay. I was like, dude, she doesn't understand, man. Like it was bad. Anyway, we got, we got the plates. We got them in two colors, actually. And in that moment, I, I, I decided I'm going to put my foot, I'm, I'm going to put my foot down, girl. Like, yeah. Like, I'm going to don't, don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. Don't, this is bad. Future husbands, future husbands of the room, don't do this. Yeah, girl, I'm about to tell you what's up. Don't do it. Big fight. Big fight. Not worth it. But in that moment, in that moment, it seemed worth it to me. Because I'm like, why do I want to litter my kitchen with the porcelain? Why do I want this in my cabinets? It's going to take up room. When are we even going to use this? Once a year? Waste of money. Like, I decided this was the most ridiculous thing on the planet. 
I was going to put my foot down and I drew a line in the sand and we had a huge fight. Um, and you know, like, it's so dumb. We made up, I'm like, babe, would you forgive me? I'm sorry for being such an idiot, right? Like, but in that moment, I decided that my posture towards this thing was going to be a tight fist. Like, I'm not going to relinquish this. I will not let this go. I'm going to hang on to this thing. Like, I decided this is worth the fight. And I don't know if anyone in the room has ever looked back on an argument and decided that was not worth it. Like, you look back on it and you're like, oh, I'm a clown. Like, I'm a straight up bozo. Like, I'm dumb. Because of what I did, the, the feelings that got hurt, the things I said, I can't believe that I had that tight of a grip on that. And you look back and you wish, I wish I would have had this posture instead. I wish I would have relinquished control, like my opinion, my preferences. Who, it's not even that big of a deal. Baby, you feel the pressure to get these. It doesn't make sense. But okay, like we'll do it. Years later, oh my gosh. Years later, my sweetheart comes to me and she's like, hey, do you think we could sell those plates and get a good price on them? I'm like, we're keeping the plates. <laughs> I didn't go through that for nothing, right? But looking, I was like, are you kidding me? But in that moment, I had this posture. And now when I look back, I wish I would have had this posture. Because I look back on that fight. It was one of the biggest fights we've ever had. I look back and I'm like, Matt, you were clearly being prideful and dumb and stubborn and obtuse and narrow-minded. Like, you didn't even consider her perspective. Like, I wish I would have been here, but I was here. But on the flip side, some of us look back on certain conflicts in your life or scenarios in your life, and you wish you would have been more like this. Like, you look back and you're like, I wish I would have stood up for myself instead of being so passive. I wish I would have spoken up about something that I believed that was right instead of being walked over or silent or dismissive. And so really, this, this posture of when do we actually be tight-fisted and take control and take a stand, and when do we be open-handed and let things go and, and not have to worry about them, this is life. Like, this is just part of growing up. It's part of becoming an adult. It's part of maturing. This is life. This fork in the road of figuring out when do I take a stand and when do I let things go. And I was thinking about this, especially in terms of our spirituality. And I've been uh, thinking about this and wrestling with this all week. But in terms of our spirituality, in terms of our faith, in terms of our pursuit uh, within our soul uh, of something more, as we navigate this life, how do we know when to take stances and, and just have this tight fist of like, nope, I'm drawing a line in the sand, this is right. Uh, or this is wrong, or whatever, and then how do we know when to be open-handed and let things go and understand, dude, we can have, like, different perspectives and different ideas, and we don't have to argue, and it's okay. Like, there's grace in this thing. How does this apply to our spirituality? Because I want to talk uh, tonight about Jesus disrupting yet another thing. And honestly, in my mind, it, it's one of the most divisive dichotomies within the Christian faith. I hear people arguing all the time about this idea. Even adults, it's not just a student thing. But here's the deal. The reason I, I really want to talk about it tonight is because, and adults can testify to this, like, let's be honest. The older you get, the more stuck in your ways you become for better or for worse. And so if your trajectory is off in your youth, it eventually leads you to these places 
that aren't in line with where you should be, and you kind of get to these conclusions, and by then, it's almost too late to rework everything, and you've got to kind of correct that and come back from that. It's so difficult, and the reason I wanted to talk about this tonight is because if we can get a healthy approach, a healthy mindset, and a healthy posture towards this tension at this age, it will set us up for success, and I think, I believe, as we look at the life of Jesus, this is what he modeled constantly balancing in in this position of when do you take a stance for things or speak up about things or speak into people about things and then when do you actually not and 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 the reality is so much of life is a gray area like it's not all black and white you guys realize that right oh i have a dead crowd with me tonight you guys realize that right oh (laughs) They're back. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Miracle. Like, life's not all black and white. There's some things that are black and white. And certainly this book right here, I believe the inspired word of God, speaks to a lot of things that are black and white, but it doesn't speak to everything. There are categories in life that are gray. And if you're not practicing discernment of when do you have this approach and when do you have this approach, tight fist or open hand, if you're not practicing, eventually you reach the conclusion the only safe place to be are the extremes of either of these and that's not healthy. So here's what I want to jump into tonight. John 15. This is going to be a launching point for us. We're actually going to spend the majority of our time in the Old Testament. But John 15, Jesus is teaching This is the the very night of his arrest and betrayal. He's about to go to his death. He's about to be murdered. So these are some of his last words, last teachings before his resurrection. And Jesus is teaching John 15. I'm just going to share two verses, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These are two verses from John 15 that I want to share tonight. And from these two verses, um, Christians, those who claim faith in Jesus, have extracted this saying or this idea. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Those who follow Jesus should be in the world, but not of the world. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah. Oh, Jenny Ann, is that you? Yeah. Hey, two gold stars. First for complimenting my boo, my girl, my... Mm. <laughs> but second for this. I love that. I'm a person and you're people. We can actually talk and you don't have to be silent. Like I actually, I like to interact with people, okay? So please give me some feedback. And it, has anyone ever heard, be in the world and not of the world? Yeah. That's much better. Head nods are not vocal, but I appreciate the the effort right side of the room, left side of the room, you stepped it up, and I really appreciate that. God smiles upon you. Okay. So this statement is true. This is what Jesus is teaching. Basically, Jesus is teaching this. Because of your belief in me, your vertical alignment with me has now given you a different set of values which do not line up with your horizontal culture or context. In other words, those who believe in Jesus will oftentimes be at odds in their value system 
with the world around them at large. Because newsflash, the world doesn't believe in Jesus. I don't know if you knew that, okay? The majority of Americans don't believe in Jesus. Most claim they do or think they do, but, like, let's be honest. We're not a, we're a post-Christian nation. Like, that's where we're at in our reality, okay? We're Christian in culture, but not in practice. Let's be real about that. So Jesus is trying to teach this idea, like, through your faith in me, you have to understand it will put you at odds with the culture around you. It's not a bad thing. Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples. They hated me first. People are probably going to hate you. A good question to be asking yourself is, man, if no one's getting upset at me for my values or my faith, am I living it out expressively enough? That's a great question. Now, but hear me, I'm not talking about being some uh, rude, arrogant, judgmental, belittling person who's like, holds the picket sign up. Like, of course they hate you. Everyone would hate that. Okay. Uh, Christians hate that, <laughs> but I'm talking about Jesus is saying your values will put you at odds. And we've extracted this idea to be in the world but not of the world, and it's accurate, but what I'm afraid of is that over time, we've actually began to misapply or misunderstand or, or, or misinterpret what Jesus is saying. And we've created kind of two extremes of this idea because, let's be honest, we're not great at living in gray areas. And so constantly having to use discernment of when to have a stance on this or be vocal about this or open-handed or, and let that go, we're not good at this in any category of life, but in our spirituality too. We love extremes. Extremes are comfortable. It's easy to stand on an extreme. To stand in the middle is so hard. Such a gray area. It requires so much mental energy to figure it out every time. Who wants that? So we go to the extremes. So the extremes of what Jesus is teaching here, what we've done with this verse, and I don't think Jesus is doing this with this teaching, but what we've taken is, okay, if you claim faith in Jesus, basically to approach your faith um, in an extreme manner would be, so imagine a, a seesaw right here, Okay. And the seesaw is balancing on the fulcrum of love. Love is in the dead center. This is what Jesus modeled. John chapter 1 verse 14 and John chapter 1 verse 17. Biblical repetition is an important thing. When it says it multiple times, you got to pay attention. Jesus came full of grace and truth, which means he was graciously truthful. He said true things, but in a gracious way. But he was also truly gracious, right? Like he was love and, and grace with people. It's amazing to me that the people who felt most welcomed by Jesus were the people that the rest of religion and, and um, culture kind of deemed as like, oh, you don't talk to them. What are you talking? Man, those are wicked. Those are bad people. And they actually felt the most welcomed by Jesus, right? So he's in the middle of love, full of grace and truth. The extreme idea of to be in the world but not of the world one extreme is this. This is what Christians have done forever. We're so guilty of this. One extreme is over here, and this is full-on removal and separation from the world. A few weeks ago, I taught a, a message in here um, entitled, Jesus Came to Disrupt Religion, and specifically toxic religion, and this is what I'm talking about, this posture, which basically people who claim faith in Jesus, they stand on this extreme, and they look at the world or everything opposed to Jesus, and they're like, yeah, we can't participate in anything. 
We got to remove ourselves from everything. We're going to be over here in our holy club. We got our holy rollers. Yo, dog, we got our t-shirts, which are super cheesy and corny. We got all of our, like, swag stuff going on. We got our huge old Bibles. That's how I get my workout in because it's so big. You know I'm godly because my Bible size matters, right? Like, we got all these stuffs going on. Can't participate in anything because that's sinful. And we live in this extreme. And in and, and a second, I want to tell you a little bit about my journey because I want you to know something. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up with Jesus. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I came to believe in Jesus when I was 16 years old at a radical transformation. He pulled me out um, of, a, of a life and trajectory heading one way. And when I came to believe in Jesus, because I, I didn't know how to approach anything, I was so full of passion. I had been brought out of so much wickedness that in my mind, this was how to live. Now, I want to share this in a minute, because I'm coming from a very religious, like, Pharisee, uh, fundamental, rigid, judgmental, like, when I first believed in Jesus, this was me. I'm going to share that in a minute. So that's one extreme. And here's what I want to let you know. If this is your posture, and you're in here, and you claim faith in Jesus, and your posture is stand on this extreme, fully remove yourself from the world, here's what it will cost you you will have zero, and I mean zero, influence on the world. You'll have tons of influence with other holy roller Christians who are super judgmental and belittle everybody who has anything to do with sin, even though you're blind to your own. But it will cost you influence. No one's going to listen to you. You can have no positive impact or change on culture or the world at large because you've so far removed yourself from it. Modern day example of this would be the, the Amish culture. We're going to preserve this culture in this time. We will not advance. We will not evolve. We're going to actually create barriers and bubbles and become our own little thing. And you're a tourist attraction at best to the world. Now, in your own circles, it's pretty dope. Like, hey, man, what'd you do the other night? <laughs> 7 p.m. I was in bed. Woo! 7 p.m. That's late. Right? In your own circles, you got it. You're rolling. But to the world, you've lost influence. That's the cost of this extreme. And it's amazing because you never see Jesus model this, ever, and yet those who claim faith in Jesus do this all the time in an approach to be more like him. It's so baffling to me. The thing Jesus got in trouble for the most was spending time with bad people. So removing ourselves from the world is not the way of Jesus. And yet somehow we've read this verse and taken it to mean to be in the world but not of the world must mean we have to remove ourselves entirely. It's not what it means. We lose influence. And, by the way, if the center point is love, look how far away we are from love. The reason most people don't want anything to do with Jesus is because of people who represent Jesus like this. And I'm begging you, if you're in the room tonight and you don't believe in Jesus and you're trying to figure life out and you're curious and you're on a spiritual journey, I'm begging you not to view Jesus by those who represent Jesus in this way, please. Because he's much better than this. But the other extreme, and this is how, um, I've been in student ministry 14 years now, okay? I've been around the block, okay? Yeah, multiple times. The other extreme, I've had, you know, student, students forever who go to these extremes. The other extreme is this. Well, Matt... We're just so tired of seeing those Christians over there live that life 
And we need to show the world that Jesus is actually like cool. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, don't worry, man. Don't worry. Honestly, you're cool. If you don't know what that is, I like, I, you're better off than me. I'm a youth pastor, so I have to succumb to these things. Renegade death. Um. <laughs> I have never felt so cool in my life. So we have to show, we have to show the world, Matt, that Jesus is actually cool and that he's not like that. And, and we're going to do it by immersing ourselves into it. Like we're just going to fully cannonball into this thing. And, and we're going to hang out with all the people that the Christians don't hang out with. And we're going to go to all the parties that they don't go to. And we're going to participate in everything that the world has to offer. And in so doing, we're going to show them how cool Jesus is. Like he's just chill, man. Like he'll take a draw of your blunt. And then, like, talk some philosophy with you, right? Like, what the heck? But this is the extreme. And I see students do this all the time. I had a student, Dallas and I were talking about this just the other day because he remembered this story. It was Dallas. Um, I'm just kidding, man. I had a student one time tell me that he's basically got it figured out. And I was like, what do you have figured out? And, and he's like, I know how to live life. And I'm like, how? He's like, dude, I don't want to give up my faith, but... I love partying and like doing drugs and drinking and fooling around with girls. So I'm going to do that stuff too. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I got to figure it out, man. Pretty smart. I'm like, okay. Okay. So this extreme is we're going to show the world how great Jesus is by participation, right? Full immersion. That extreme costs you influence with the world. This extreme costs you identity because part of following Jesus is being distinctly different from the cultural values of the world around you that's what that entire passage is about that we just read and when you fully immerse you lose your identity as a son or a daughter of God and then people look at you and they don't see any differences in your life or their life and it becomes very confusing. And so in your effort to actually help people understand how cool Jesus is, you've actually confused them to understand how different he is. You've lost your identity as a son or daughter. This is not the approach. Jesus, in this passage, as he's talking about being in the world and not of the world, the inherited assumption there is that you're living in this world and yet your cultural values cannot line up with this world. And therefore, you cannot remove yourself from the world, and you cannot line up exactly with the world. There's a middle ground. And on this seesaw, it is incredibly difficult to stay here and stand here because it's not on the extremes. On the extremes, the weight tips down, and you're firmly planted, and you don't have to worry about maintaining balance or using discernment or, or wondering when to take a stand or have an open hand. You don't have to worry about any of that because you're firmly planted. But in the middle, everything's a balancing act. Weight's shifting and legs are moving and you're constantly throwing your weight around and you're trying to discern in the moment 
what's appropriate and when and why. The extremes are easy. The middle, hovering over love, is difficult. Don't go to the extremes, please. It's not what Jesus is teaching in this passage. It's it's nowhere in his character. Again, full of grace and full of truth. Somehow, Jesus was the most appealing person on the planet for the most wicked and terrible people on the planet, and they loved being around him, and the people who hated being around him were those who claimed to have it all figured out, super religious, super righteous. But you... You don't see Jesus fully immersing into the world either. And I hear all the time, yeah, but like Jesus hung out with the sinners, so I'm going to hang out. with, And that's great. Jesus hung out with prostitutes, but he didn't go to the corner and buy one. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference between proximity and practice. You guys hear me? Okay. All right. Love. It's hard. Gray area. It's difficult. I know. So... I want to go to Daniel. I told you we're going to be in Old Testament. I want to go to Daniel. I want to look at this story real quick. And I I just want you to know, because I said I'd share a little bit of mine. I came, when I believed in Jesus, I was coming from this background, this perspective right here. Super religious, righteous, right? Like, gosh, man. Like, I I didn't know any better, right? I had no one to teach me grace. And so when I believed in Jesus, I became so passionate. I was very judgmental. I was very um, passionate about my faith. But I turned so many people off to Jesus' love and grace because I presented him as super rigid, legalistic, and judgmental. Because I was. So, like, my philosophy in life was, like, if it's not of God, well, then who can, who can it be for except the devil? Right? Like, if it's not Christian's music, it's Satan's music. Like, I had that mentality. I was so dumb. Like, there's no middle ground, really? Like, you can't vibe to John Mayer, everyone? It's Satan. Right? Like, uh, Wow, dude, okay. Like so many things in my mind that were sinful, as I got older, I began to realize I deemed them as sinful because the culture I grew up in, deep south, the denomination I found Jesus in had its own traditions. Even like the, the uh, family that I grew up in, like they had their own ideas of what sin was. And I allowed those things to define right versus wrong instead of the word of God. It took me about four or five years to actually deconstruct a lot of those things and realize, well, wait a minute. These aren't all sinful. Some of these are really good, right? But I started over here on super religious righteous. Like my my mentality was so like it's one way or no way. Like I was just so overbearing, man. I would go up to people in school like, hey, man, you believe in Jesus? Nah, you want to burn in hell. Like I was just super like... I did not win that many people over to Jesus. And if I did, it was because they were afraid, right? Like, it's just, it's not, it's not the way of love. But that's what I had to come out of. I had to learn grace. So we're in the disruptor. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus came to disrupt our participation, our participation. And here's what I mean. For those on this end of the spectrum where you're like, yeah, full cannonball into the world, There are times when participation might not actually be the best representation of Jesus, and you might actually need to say no, have that tight-fisted approach, and say no to a few things to hover over here in love. It's okay to be distinctly different. doesn't mean you have to be super judgmental. Hey, super religious people, righteous people, you need to understand it's actually okay to participate in some things of this world. 
it's not as simple as if it's not of God, it's of Satan. Like it's not that simple. And you need to understand that you have some freedoms in Christ and you can enjoy those things and you don't have to be super like everything to the world. Jesus comes to disrupt our participation. For some, that means you need to have a little bit more of a tight hand towards certain things, move towards the center. For others, that means you need to be able to let things go and actually enjoy some things in this life because they're not all bad. Yeah, but you can't find it in the Bible. It's okay. It's okay that it's not in there. There's a lot of things not in there. An immature believer, when they come to a moral fork in the road, they'll ask the question, what's wrong with this? Come on, what's wrong with it, dude? Why can't I do it? A mature believer, when they come to that same moral fork in the road, they'll look at it and say, what's right about it? Why should I do this? It's a very different mentality. But you're functioning in the discernment of should I not or should I? It's, it's discernment. Avoid the extremes. All right. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read eight verses. Daniel chapter 1. Interesting story. I'm going to fly through some of this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, fun Jewish names in this passage, man, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, placed the vessels in his treasury of the people of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, ouch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Some of you guys know what a eunuch is. You thought that was funny. Okay. <laughs> Figure that out. All right. To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them, verse 5, this is key, we're going to come back to this. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these young men were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief of the eunuchs renamed them. I'm going to skip that for a second. Um, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. All right, eight verses. I know I went through that fast, so let me help you understand because I, I, I was blazing there. Israel is divided into two territories, northern Israel, which is called Israel, and southern Israel, which is called Judah. This kingdom over here of Babylon decides we're going to attack Judah 800 miles away. We're going to lay siege to it. Comes over here, Nebuchadnezzar's the king, comes over here, attacks Judah. Judah's defeated. Nebuchadnezzar says, we want to wipe Israel off the face of history. Some kings might take the approach of, we'll kill everyone we come across. Nebuchadnezzar has a different approach, and it's honestly brilliant. Nebuchadnezzar says, we don't want to kill these guys. We want to brainwash these guys. We want them to become Babylonians. Wow, what a great salt in the wound tactic. If we can convince young Jewish boys that our culture and our way of life and our gods are better than theirs, what a statement that would make. How defeating would that be for Israel? 
And so they come, they conquer, and then they export young Jewish boys of royal line. So these are like young princes and things like that. They export them back to Babylon, 800-mile march, and the king basically has an indoctrination program. You saw in verse 5, it's a three-year program. It is a brainwashing program, entirely geared for these young men to immerse themselves fully in Babylonian culture. Full immersion, this end of the spectrum. You're going to dress how we dress. You're going to talk how we talk, so you need to learn the language. You're going to go to our schools. You're going to learn our ways. You're going to learn our customs. You're going to become full Babylonian. Three-year program. We're going to rename you. This was the very end of verse 7. The chief unit gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now those names may be more familiar to you because they're in the furnace later on. So they renamed them. The new names they got were names of the, the pagan gods of Babylon. So they renamed them after their own deities. That's an insulting thing to these young men. Yeah, we know you worship Yahweh. In a second you'll be saying Yahoo. Not the chocolate milk. That was a little quick there. We're talking about we're giving you new names. We're going to indoctrinate you into our culture. Full assimilation. That's the strategy. We could have killed you, but instead, we want you to renounce everything that you once knew and think that this culture is better. And honestly, this was not a hard life. It's not a hard life. Fine clothes. I mean, the king is basically saying, yeah, what do you guys want? What do you guys want? You want supreme t-shirts? We got that covered. No problem. You want some, like, new chucks, new Converse shoes? We'll get you, like, a dozen. What do you want? Some new Adidas? We got that. We get you any clothes you want. We get you the finest. The king's, like, giving them these very nice things. You want, the, you want a new education? We've got the highest education. Go to our schools. Now, you got to learn the language, but look, we're going to help you out with that. We're going to get you like Duolingo Supreme version. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to help you out. In fact, part of this process would include, more than likely would include castration for these young men. If you're in here and you are wondering what that means, part of them would have been removed, okay? Because the king is not only trying to erase their past, but prevent their future. We're not going to let you ever reproduce, right? Like the king is, now that part would have been hard, but the king is inviting them into this good, easy, comfortable life where they'll never be in want. Like this is a very interesting strategy, a military strategy. We're going to conquer you, but then give you a life of ease. And the only condition is it's got to be our way of living. It's actually brilliant because we're going to make you think this is so much better. And the king also says this in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. You're going to eat like a king. What you want? You want cookout with half a dozen milkshakes? You, get, you name it, man. We'll get you the flavors. Anything, dude. Or you want a ribeye every night? Pfft, medium or medium rare. Like, we'll, we'll hook you up, dude. You're going to eat like a king. Like, this is not a very hard life. His strategy is full immersion and remove that Jewish culture and religious ideology you have. We, we want you to jump in. And here's the interesting thing. Verse 8. Daniel takes a stand. So he's sitting here 
in the balance, in the gray area, trying to discern when do I have an open hand, when do I have a tight fist, when do I let this go, when do I take a stand here? And look what he takes a stand on. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel, my dude, what? Like out of, out of all the things you could have taken a stand on, hey, we're going to conquer your lands. We're going to kidnap you. We're going to take you from your home. Daniel's a teenage boy, like 15 years old, maybe. We're going to take you from everything you know and march you 800 miles eastward towards a land and a country and a custom and a culture you have no idea. Someone might have revolted then. I ain't going to do it. Didn't revolt. Didn't rebel. All right, now you're going to wear our garb. You're going to dress like us. I ain't going to do it. Daniel didn't throw a fit there. We're going to rename you. We're going to name you after our gods. How insulting is that? Not a peep. You got to learn how we learn. You got to go to our schools. You got to speak our language. You got to live our culture and customs. You got to fully assimilate. Nada. Oh, and by the way, Daniel, you need to eat like really well. You need to eat like a king. I'm not doing it! What? Yeah, you heard me. I will die before I eat like a king. Okay. Like, this dude's weird, man. <laughs> like, okay. Like, I might have pushed back at the castration thing. Like, that's just me. That's probably where I've been like, you can kill me. Like, line in the sand. <laughs> You ain't taking that. And you don't hear a peep from Daniel. The thing he pushes back on, I will not eat like the king. What? You're willing to die for this? And it's not just Daniel. He's willing to risk his life and the lives of his friends. Like, can you see all the other teenagers there who have been kidnapped? They're ready to, man, they're like, they're chomping away. And Daniel stands up, I won't eat this. And they're like, dude, shut up, eat your food, man. What are you? Like, they're going to kill us all because you don't want to eat a steak? What the heck, man? Why would Daniel take a stand over food? It's the most bizarre thing. Verse 5 is, is kind of an indicator here. Look at verse 5. Remember, the king is not like their pal. He's not their buddy. He's conquered them. He's, he's dominated and defeated them. He's brainwashing them to full immersion into Babylonian culture to erase their Jewish customs and history. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of food. A daily portion of food and wine. In other words, the king's strategy is, I'm going to let them eat like I eat. They will never be hungry. They'll never be in want. But here's the deal. I'm only going to give it to him on a daily basis. In other words, remember, he's not trying to be their pal. He's trying to brainwash them. In other words, I will slowly teach them that they must rely on me if they want to live. I'll give them just what they need for today, but I won't give them anything beyond that. And tomorrow when they wake up in the morning and they're wondering, man, is food going to come? Is food going to come? When it comes, they will be reminded it's from the king. I'll give them what they need for one day and only one day and nothing more. And over three years, that would slowly teach someone, we cannot approach tomorrow unless the king provides today. He is our provider. And for Daniel, this whole idea, 
Not to mention the fact that eating this type of food was in direct uh, contradiction to the first five books of the Bible. That was also in his mind, but it's also this idea of like, no, I've got a provider, and it's Yahweh, not the king of Babylon. Dude, I'll do all this other stuff. You can rename me. You can redress me. I'll relearn a language. I'll, I'll go to school. You can march me 800 miles. For those things, I've got an open hand, open hand, open hand. But for this, I will never see you as my provider. I will not see you as my sustainer. No. Tight fist. You can kill me on that. It's incredible. This 15-year-old teenager is taking a stand, putting his own life at risk. And what's amazing is if you follow the story of Daniel, he actually becomes one of the most influential people in the kingdom of Babylon. Not just teenagers, people. Like he's more influential than adults. God begins to bless his influence. He begins to rise in the ranks. The king begins to trust him. Daniel becomes an influential person in the nation of Babylon. Do you think he would have had any influence whatsoever had he stood over here and said, I ain't marching. I ain't wearing a new wardrobe. I ain't learning a new language. I ain't going to new schools. You can't rename me. Man, I belong to God. <laughs> like, no influence. Do you think he would have had any identity as a child of God had he said, dude, I'll do whatever you want, man. I'll do whatever. I just don't want to die. New diet, that's fine with me. Every day, king, you provide. You're the provider. He might have had influence, but no identity. Somehow Daniel figured out this middle ground. I will use discernment to know when to let things go and discernment to know when to take a stand. And what's really, really interesting about Daniel is if you follow his trajectory throughout the kingdom of Babylon, he stays there for like four rulers later, the King Cyrus comes along and finally Daniel's time there ends, but he would stay there for four rulers. And he eventually was put in charge of all the magicians in Babylon. They had all these like wise seekers of knowledge and truth and magicians. He was put in charge of them. Now get this, 500 something years later, there's this little baby that's born. And when he's born, this sign gets put in the sky, a star. And some 800 miles away from Bethlehem is this city called Babylon. And a group of magi, short for magicians, from the east, the scriptures say, Babylon's east of Jerusalem, magi from the east are awaiting the sign and they see a star and they set out on a journey to go visit the new king of the Jews. How on earth did Magi, 800 miles away, know when to expect and what to look for when Messiah, king of the Jews, is born? I can't, like, there's no concrete thread in the scripture of like, oh, it was Daniel. But Daniel is this young Jewish man who remains faithful to his God and eventually is placed in charge of the Magi. And I imagine that through his influence and his presence, he was eventually able to tell them about his faith and what he believed and a Messiah who was coming. And 500 years later, we see Magi from the East coming to worship the baby Jesus. Daniel would have had no influence had he fully separated and no identity had he fully assimilated. Daniel is a model, and I love that he's a teenager, man. 
don't ever let people say that you can't live this or figure this out because of your age, dude. Teenagers are heroes all over the scriptures. Daniel is a model for how we approach faith. The middle ground, teetering, balancing, shifting, using discernment. Do I take a stand? Do I let that go? He's the model for how to approach this. Jesus wants to disrupt our participation. For some of us, way, way over here, you need to understand that your religious zeal and your passion and your judgmental approaches and your belittling and condescending does not reflect any ounce of Jesus' love. It fully misrepresents who Jesus is. This is not what Jesus meant when he said, be in the world but not of it. To fully remove yourself fully removes Jesus and the understanding of who he is from a world that needs him. You need to let go of some of this and understand that maybe some of the things that you think are sinful, this book actually doesn't say are, and it's okay to have some freedom in this life and participate in some things. To this extreme over here, you're like, man, we want to show the world how cool Jesus is. Like, that's awesome, and he is cool. I think he's the most magnetic personality history has ever seen. Like, you see it with those who followed him and were drawn to him. But again, proximity does not mean participation. And while Jesus spent the bulk of his time with people who were far from God, his lifestyle didn't match theirs. He was something uniquely different. And the approach to win people over for Jesus can't be to match their lifestyle. That just confuses them about who Jesus is. And to this group, I would say you probably need to practice discernment to understand yeah, I probably shouldn't be so loose on those convictions. I should probably come. Having a conviction is not the same as, as casting judgment. Like, please understand that. Just because you think something's wrong doesn't mean that, that you have to remove yourself from people. An action that you think is wrong, you don't have to deem that person as wrong. Like, it... But we make this dichotomy in our heads, like, oh, you got to be over here. Over... No, that's not love. Practice discernment. Jesus wants to disrupt your participation. For some, you need to move more in. You need to try some things out. You need to have some fun. You need to let go of some things. You need to participate and shower yourself and others with grace because Jesus did that. For some, you need to understand there, are, there is truth and there are standards that Jesus modeled, and we need to move towards over here. Jesus modeled grace and truth, truth and grace. It's hard to stay here. Extremes are easy because they're comfortable. You don't have to worry about your balance or practicing discernment or trying to figure it out in the gray area. It's black and white, but it's also far from what Jesus modeled. Use discernment, grace and truth, but the motive has always got to be love. That's where you've got to be hovering. Love, love for others, love for yourself, love for God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Gosh, you modeled such a life um, that I look at and, and I'm just in awe. How you approached people and how you pulled people into a proper understanding of who God is. We get this wrong on so many levels. And I pray, Jesus, that in this moment, you would send your spirit because John 15 is about the spirit. 
that you would send your spirit into this room to wash over our minds and flood into our hearts and give us a proper understanding of your word and your love and your life and how we can actually live in a way that loves others well and live in a way that partners up with others and, 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 and shares this life. We can't fully remove and we can't fully participate. Jesus, help us. It's so hard. But if we can get this right at this age, the trajectory, the foundation we're laying will set us up, I think, for a revival. I, I think this generation, I think you're posturing them and positioning them to be changers in this world. But we've got to get this right. We ask, Jesus, that you would give us your spirit, help us understand, help us have clarity. We ask this, Jesus, in your name.